Hi, everybody. This is Sierra. And this is Matt. And welcome to Monkey Business, your favorite podcast about primates and PhDs. Today, we'll be talking about a tiny primate with quite the flow. Weighing at less than one pound, these guys are popular in social cognitive research because of their cooperative breeding strategies and their quote-unquote apparent monogamy. Today, we'll be talking about the Cotton Top Cameron. couple weeks into the semester yes how are you liking your classes so far so i'm enjoying my classes so far right now sierra and i are only in two classes and then we also take other classes like research based you know where we do our own research and directed readings and all that kind of stuff but the actual classes that we're taking are hormones and behavior which is shaping up to be a pretty cool class i think with a large focus on animal um, hormones, which I'd say is not the case for a lot of classes that you sometimes yeah. have to take as a PhD student. You know, we we both come in here and we're primary researchers, right? But like sometimes we're kind of while while important, we're sometimes taking very human-based classes, and some of the classes aren't always directed towards us. But I feel like this one with like its focus on animals and hormones has really kind of been a cool class so far. So I'm super excited for the rest of the semester, and I think it's gonna be a good time. And then the other one is a class that we're learning how to code in R, which has been... Will be so helpful. (laughs) Yes, yes. I recommend anybody who is wanting to pursue a PhD to start now trying to code in R because it is such a helpful, useful skill Mm -hmm. um, for running data analysis, managing your data, manipulating your data, visualizing data, Mm -hmm. all all sorts of stuff. R is just so helpful for that. I think it's like the primary software that most people use at this point. Yeah, And and it's free and it's open source. And so you can pretty much find out how to do any sort of thing you would want to possibly know how to do online. And so I think it's going to be a good semester. I'm excited for these classes compared to some other classes maybe that I've taken in the past. But I know I was thinking about it. This might be the last time we take classes as a student. I know, right? I mean, when well, you do a pe- next semester, but this next year. semester, but this year. Yeah. I remember I saw you send that in the group <laughs> chat and it was uh, kind of heartfelt in a way too, because like, when you do a PhD, you are essentially a professional student, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're like, it's not really after that, like there's not really, I mean, you can take some classes or some like online seminars or something, mm-hmm. but for the most part, like, yeah, this is it. So Those this is, classes, yeah. this is like the last little bit of uh, classes we're ever going to ever have to take, which is kind of cool, but also kind of bittersweet, but I'm excited because personally, I like doing the research more than the classes, but that's just me. Also, do you feel like the classes in graduate school are what you expected? Yes and no. Um, I think that I like that a lot of the ones that we've taken previously have been smaller, more discussion kind of seminar based. Like I loved when our advisor, Sarah Brosnan, had a class on basically the evolution of primate behavior and all that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed that class, how you know, Sarah didn't really talk a whole lot. Um, she she interjected and she made sure that she used her knowledge to kind of like guide our discussion. But for the most part, it was kind of us just like 
we'll just say 10 PhD students just in a room discussing papers and discussing topics and what they mean and, and our interpretations of them. And I really kind of enjoyed that. I think that with this hormones of behavior class, because it's an upper level class, it's, it's going to be a little bit less of that and more of the classic college class. I feel like I've grown more as like a scientist being able to like express my ideas and be able, being able to communicate them to other people by doing these kind of seminar-based discussion classes. So I've really enjoyed it. I will say, I think the, the part that surprised me the most was I, I would have thought like you go to graduate school, right? And you're like, you're going to be taking graduate classes and they're going to be super difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that they weren't challenging, but I don't think that I was like, like I took biochem as undergrad and that's by far the most challenging class I've ever taken. Right. And like none of these classes that we've taken in grad school, like compare to that level. And I know it's a completely different field. I get that. But like, I think that was one thing is I was, I thought that maybe like they would be like really super rigorous and like, I'd be studying like all the time, but it's really kind of not that way. I feel like the classes are there to supplement your knowledge, introduce you to new new topics and kind of like let you dive deeper, but then also not overwhelming you so much that you also have time to do your own research. So what was so challenging about that biochem class? I mean, it's just, I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever taken biochem. It was a very difficult class. Worst part was ended up not needing it. Uh, that I took it when I thought I was going to go to med school or vet school. And turns out it literally didn't even like apply, like didn't, it, all it did was contribute hours to my graduation total, but it was just a lot of memorization, right? Um, which I don't think is grad school, right? It's not all about memorization. That stuff will come, but it's mostly about synthesizing your information and like taking in ideas and knowledge and then being able to create and form new ideas, but then also being able to discuss those and communicate those with people. And then in a lot of ways, in a civil way, <laughs> arguing with people too, like uh, about and, and discussing and debating differences because the reality is in science, there's a lot more opinion out there than a lot of people maybe believe in science. And so being able to kind of form that opinion and that interpretation and then being able to express that and then talk with someone who maybe has an opposite opinion and, and be able to discuss that. So I've learned those skills more in graduate classes and I never would have thought I did that. Yeah, I think the way the school system set up when you're younger that they hand you information and you take that as truth. Mm-hmm. And that's like how it is. That's how the world works. Science proved this. But mm-hmm. a lot of what I've, like you said, come to realize is that there's a lot of interpretation when it comes to results. And Absolutely. so those things in your books, a lot of, well, some of the things are pretty, pretty true. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of things also that are, interpreted from results to mean certain things that they take as true, which might not be. Yeah. I love what you said there. I think that's like such a great quote to be going into grad school to like have that understanding that up until this point, you've been taught things and you've taken them as true. Mm -hmm. But the moment you become a graduate student and you start learning more and more about it, you realize that those things that, you know, a lot of those things are true or are most likely true, but there's also a lot of things out there that, you know, now you're given information and you need to interpret it and you need to determine, you know, is that valid? Did they have a large enough sample size? Do they have a large enough effect size? Are these results actually what they're interpreting or were they just trying to make some cool interpretation so that they could get in nature, right? So that has become such a cool skill, but I really love that quote where it's just like, up until now, what we've learned, we've taken as fact, but now that we're in grad school, everything that we learn, we question, um, which is kind of cool. So 
Anyways, well, let's go ahead and move on away from the complicated scientific process and into talking about some complicated primates. So yeah. All right, Sierra. So give me the lowdown on what these guys look like because they are pretty exotic. Absolutely. These guys are probably one of my favorite in terms of hairstyles. The cotton top tamarin is a small new world monkey. And when I say small, they're very, very small. On average, they weigh about 15 ounces, which is less than a tall boy we got at the bar the other night, you know? Oh, so they're like really small. Super tiny. I mean, I I guess I could just hold it in the palm of my hand. (laughs) This species is not sexually dimorphic, and the male and the female are of a similar size and weight. One physical trait that sticks out immediately when looking at them is their long white hairdo. Oh, so they have some flow. Wow. I'm jealous. I've been trying to grow out my hair uh, for quite some time now, and these guys are now my inspiration. Can't wait when you come to lab meeting with that hairstyle. <laughs> but yeah, they have some major flow. The long white hair flows from their forehead all the way down their shoulders, and most definitely where this monkey gets its name. The skin on its face is black with gray or white bands located just above the eyes. These bands continue along the edge of the face down to the jaw. The cotton top tamarind has fine white hair covering its face, but it's so fine it doesn't even look like there's any hair at all. This has resulted in people classifying them into the bare-faced tamarind kind of classification, which if you don't know, the tamarinds are classified based off of the amount of hair they have on their face. Oh, so they're judging like uh, boys going through puberty, how much facial hair they have. <laughs> Maybe that's how they judge it. <laughs> and the cotton top also has whiskers on its forehead and around its mouth. And its lower canine teeth are longer than its incisors, creating the appearance of tusks. I was going to say that that kind of sounds menacing. But these guys are far too small to be scared of. Yeah, they're definitely not an intimidating primate. But I definitely see some, I don't know if you've seen uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, some of that orc Mm, look. I I don't know if they got their inspiration from these guys. I mean, I don't think so, but... (laughs) Yeah, I definitely see that. They're like a mini orc, right? So like, you know, cool looking, but not really scared of it. (laughs) Well, orcs are kind of scary. (laughs) All right, and then... Their back is covered in brown fur, and their underparts, arms, and legs are like a whitish-yellow color. The rump, inner thighs, and upper tail are reddish-orange, like other calotrichids, which is just the family that this species falls into. The cotton tops have sharp nails on all digits except for the big toes, and these sharp nails resemble like squirrel claws and help them climb trees. Finally, their tail is not prehensile and they do not have opposable thumbs, which I think is kind of an interesting thing considering we think of primates always having opposable thumbs. And this new world monkey can live up to 24 years, but on average they'll live around 13 years. So 
Sarah, do you know how they, long they live in captivity, though? Is it longer or shorter? So when I say that they can live up to 24 years, that 24-year lifespan was the oldest recorded cotton top tamarind okay. in okay. captivity. I'm not sure if they know the oldest one in the wild. I don't think they do. Yeah, probably but not. They don't have tamarind birthdays out in the wild. <laughs> no. Uh, and they probably don't know all of the tamarinds in the world. So <laughs> probably make that one a little bit harder. Okay. So, so on average 13, but one in captivity, the record at least is 24 years old. Exactly. Gotcha. And uh, Matt, take it away. Where might someone find these primates? Well, I'm glad you asked. The cotton tops habitat is actually pretty small. It's restricted to an area in northwest Colombia. And this is the only country in which they can be found. The most important place for the cottontop tamarinds is Paramillo National Park. Um, I might be saying that wrong, but which is an 1800 square mile park that has both primary and secondary forests. These tamarinds prefer to stay in the lower levels of the tropical forests, but they can also be found foraging on the ground or just below the canopy. I know they're small, so they need to avoid predators, but the canopy is just too high. I'd rather face the predators on the forest floor. But you probably wouldn't last very long as a tamarind. I think I take a little offense to that, but I'm going to let it slide because it's probably true. Speaking of being eaten, what do these guys eat? They actually primarily feast on insects, fruit, nectar, and plant exulates. Interesting. I actually had to look up that word because I did not know what it was. And plant exudates are simply any fluid that comes from like plant roots. So some common examples include resins, gums, and like oils. So you think like maple syrup also counts as that? Yeah, I think that might be one. So basically the tamarins love to visit the IHOP of the forest. Well, maybe I would make a really good tamarind. Yeah. <laughs> Because I like maple syrup and pancakes too. <laughs> I always load syrup on whenever I like. My mom's like, you always want you want some waffles with the side of syrup. Like, I always put so much syrup it's on. It's gotta be like when you bite into the waffle, it kind of like oozes the maple oh, syrup. Absolutely, it's yeah. gotta explode syrup in your mouth. Yeah. Uh, so I will say though that the role of plant ex in the diet of calatrichids is an important source of minerals, water, and other nutrients. However, tamarins do not have the same specialized adaptations to feeding on gum, sap, resin, and latex as most marmosets. So if you do go to IHOP, Matt, you may want to ask the marmosets instead. Duly noted. In addition to these foods, they have also been recorded eating reptiles and amphibians. You can actually see a, a picture online if you Google them where one of them's eating a reptile and its tail is hanging out of its mouth. Um, but, but that's on much rarer occasions. Insectivore, insectivory. Insectivory. I think is how you say it. I love, I, I love when I'm writing these scripts, I love just giving you the words that I just know you're going to say slightly wrong. It's so funny. I think I deliberately did that to you this time, too. So I like to say that I blame it on the fact that I was speaking another language before, but actually English is my first language, so I have no excuse. Um, okay, so insectivory is also important to their ecology. 
Some insect hunting techniques employed by the cotton top tamarins include stealth, turning over leaves, exploring crevices, pouncing, and moving rapidly on the ground to seize their prey. It is important for tamarins to have high-quality, high-energy diet because of their small bodies and limited gut volume and rapid rate of food passage. Foraging occurs in the middle layer of the canopy between 16 and 49 feet up in the trees. And these feeding sites are often selected based on fruit availability. I imagine they are not the only ones looking up there, though, right? Correct. Cotton tops compete for access to for food with squirrels and another diurnal primate species and various birds. But they also may be competing for access to food resources with nocturnal fruit and insect-eating species, including bats. Ah, a competitive world out there. I did do some research into their typical daily routine. Uh, for the cotton-top tamarind, they usually have an alternating pattern of foraging, resting, and traveling. They start their day shortly after dawn when the entire group leaves from the sleeping tree at the same time, which, if you're not familiar, is actually kind of a late start for primates. Um, they then follow these established routes to find available food, moving between 0 0.07 and 0 0.15 miles per hour. So literally how fast I move yes, in a day. <laughs> exactly. Now, you said it, not me, though. After they forage for about an hour, they begin to transition slowly to rest, where they can be seen stretching out on a branch or grooming within the social group. They continue to travel and forage throughout the day, taking increasingly longer resting periods, the longest being around midday. In late afternoon, they begin to travel more quickly and more cohesively, with limiting foraging stops until they reach a sleeping tree. How do they know which uh, sleeping tree to sleep in? Cottontops prefer to sleep in trees with some foliage cover, such as broad leaves or vines. They repeatedly use trees within their home range for sleeping sites, but do not generally use the same tree on consecutive nights. By selectively choosing sleeping trees, getting a relatively late start to their day, as I mentioned earlier, compared to other primates, and hastening foraging and traveling speeds before dusk, cottontop tamarins are likely avoiding many predators. Which makes sense given that they are like a bite-sized snack for most hungry pet predators. Exactly. Some of the main predators of cottontop tamarins include raptors, mustelids, which are like weasels and badgers, large cats, and snakes. Because remember, they are kind of small, so they could be eaten by a snake. <laughs> um, because of their bite-sized nature, cottontop tamarins are extremely vigilant, constantly scanning for potential predators above and around them, and even in captivity can be observed stopping their activities to look around. In the wild, when the group rests during the day, one group member separates itself from the resting animals and remains vigilant, alarming the group through vocalizations if it detects danger. I wonder who gets stuck with that job. I know I would not want that job. Did you find any information about their social groups and social structure? I actually did. But I want to say that most of our findings have come from studies studying these guys in captivity, whereas in the wild, social organization is a little bit less understood. But on average, group sizes range from two to seven individuals, but they have been seen to live in groups that as large as 13 individuals. These groups usually have one breeding male and one breeding female, while other group members vary in sex and age. 
groups are multi-generational, meaning the offspring are often related to the dominant breeding pair, but unrelated individuals can also make their way into the group as well. Interestingly, there are no published results from genetic tests confirming the relationships within individual groups. That is interesting. I wonder if that could be a future research question for wild populations. Most definitely. If only it would be cheaper. Yeah, if only it were that easy, right? <laughs> yeah. It seems likely that sexually mature adolescents and adults remain in their natal groups to help raise their siblings, and this pattern of behavior likely gives rise to their unique social structure. But genetic research would be useful in understanding this further. So if they are always growing up in their same group, how do they then find other mating opportunities once they get older? Well, you see, young cotton tops do not remain in their natal groups indefinitely, and group size may fluctuate over time as adults and sub-adults migrate into and out of the groups for new mating opportunities. There is no sex or age bias in this migration, meaning that males and females emigrate from their natal groups equally once cotton top tamarins emigrate into neighboring groups, they generally assume a non-reproductive role but are active caretakers of the infants and become fully integrated into the social hierarchy of that group. Very cool, very cool. It's interesting that you mentioned a lot of what we know has come from captivity because I found something very interesting in my research that ran counter to what I had thought previously about this species. Traditionally, these guys are housed in monogamous family units because monogamy was long thought to be the breeding pattern in wild populations. But in reality, cottontop tamarins are a little more risque than I originally thought. While they have been observed in seemingly monogamous groups with only one breeding male and one breeding female, they also have been seen in polygamous groups with multiple breeding males and females. Oh, very spicy. Yes. So I always heard these guys were monogamous, but it looks like there might be a little bit of infidelity out there too. One study reported that two pregnant females were present in one wild group, thus hinting that Mr. Tamarin wasn't so faithful to Mrs. Tamarin. But there are no reports of two females producing and rearing offspring in the same group. So that is an important distinction. Even though there may be some infidelity, reproduction still seems to be exclusive to only one breeding pair. Essentially, the dominant breeding female within the group suppresses reproduction in the other sexually mature females. This unique phenomenon has led to extensive research on this mechanism in both the wild and in captivity. One theory is that dominant breeding females chemically suppress younger, subordinate, and often related females via pheromonal cues. However, other mechanisms such as behavioral suppression and stress induction have also been proposed. Oh, that is some drama. I would watch that reality show. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it seems that their social relationships aren't too affected by this, though. They are relatively drama-free. Within cotton-top tamarind groups, the relationships between individuals are generally friendly with very few signs of aggression. There is a dominance hierarchy in which the primary breeding female and male are co-dominant over younger non-breeding animals within the group and breeding females can be aggressive towards younger females but this is not super common in feeding context the breeding female within the group is dominant over all group members and thus maintains priority for food items 
Regarding outgroup members, cotton top tamarins are territorial, though males and females react to intruders differently. Males are more tolerant of female intruders and are more aggressive towards male intruders, while females are somewhat intolerant of intruders and display threateningly towards both ah. sexes. <laughs> ah, I see. So the boys are promiscuous. And they don't mind if some uh, pretty females make their way into the group. Oh, yeah, yes. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't blame them, I guess. One thing that I find so interesting about this species is that they are unusually pro-social, which is actually a topic that I study at Georgia State. We will discuss pro-social behavior in the next episode, but essentially it's any behavior that benefits another individual. Some things like donations and gifts are some common examples of prosocial behavior. These guys show prosocial behavior most commonly in the form of alloparental care. You see, cotton-top tamarins are cooperative breeders, whereby the group's subordinate adults help in rearing the offspring of the dominant pair. Many believe this social behavior was the result of female cotton-top's propensity to give birth to twins and triplets. Since dominant females are more likely to give birth to non-identical twins than they are to a singleton, it would be too energetically expensive for just one pair to raise the young. Thus, cooperative infant care in tamarind social groups is essential to the survival of the infants. A single pair of tamarinds would not likely be able to successfully rear twins in the wild and are therefore dependent on the help of their other group members. That's such an interesting thought. Do you think that this behavior is instinctual? Actually, we think it's not. Um, it's actually probably a learned behavior. It's been reported that both inexperienced males and females that have never reared their own offspring are unsuccessful caregivers. If a cotton-top tamarind of either sex has no experience carrying infants, its own offspring are likely to be rejected or abused. Giving more credence to kind of this idea, Savage and colleagues found that infant survival was actually higher in the wild than in captivity. This could be due to a number of factors, of course, but it's likely that these individuals in captivity have had less experience raising their own offspring and thus have a lower survival rate. Additionally, experience is not the only factor that plays a role. Larger groups are also a contributing factor for higher survivability of infants. And in the wild, when a group approaches around five, survivability also approaches around 100%. Uh, why do you think that might be the case? Well, in the wild, larger groups can forage more efficiently, they have higher likelihood of detecting predators, and are more able to spread out the energetic costs of carrying infants than, uh, say, smaller groups. Energetic costs of carrying infants has been studied by comparing pre- and post-birth weights of males in captive groups, showing that males lose significant amounts of weight during the period of most infant carrying. It's also been reported that all caregivers spend less time feeding, less time foraging, less time moving, and less time in engaging in social activities while carrying infants. And they also spend more time in concealed areas. So there is this sort of tremendous cost to carrying infants, which needs to be distributed across those larger groups. So is there a behavioral benefit to this as well? Yeah, there is. Caregivers obviously sacrifice energetically when they carry and protect new infants, but they certainly reap benefits from this relationship too. This alloparental care behavior ensures the survival of the infants, thus increasing their indirect fitness if they are related to them. 
but it also helps them to acquire new positions in a group, learn how to be a successful parent later in life, and secure these affiliative bonds with younger animals that may help when they begin to breed. And just as a little aside, what do you mean by indirect fitness? I mean, this is a good concept to know. Yeah, so indirect fitness is the idea that, well, first of all, when talking about evolution, you know, you hear the word, like hear the terms like survival of the fittest, right? And you have, you want to maximize your reproductive success, right? Well, when you have that reproductive success is basically you want to make sure that your genes uh, go out into the larger population gene pool. Well, when you are helping some individual that is related to you, these individuals have a certain level of relatedness to you. So for example, you're 50% related to your parents, you're 25% related to your grandparents. And so the idea is that you can increase your indirect fitness by helping those that are related to you. There's actually this rule called Hamilton's rule, and it's looking at this idea of helping other individuals. And it is uh, R times B must be greater than C. And R just stands for the relatedness of the individuals. B stands for the benefit that you're providing to the recipient. And C is the cost to the individual that's performing the behavior. So basically, the relatedness times the benefit has to be greater than the cost that's being insured. So that's just a real kind of, I'm glad we touched on it, but it's essentially a way for animals to not increase their direct genes getting into the gene pool, but by helping those that are related to them, a proportion of their genes can enter the gene pool more frequently. Perpetuate further. So basically in the context of the tamarins, we have that their relatedness and the benefit is greater than the cost of alloparenting. So they alloparent. Exactly. It's kind of like the idea, I guess, with that function. Yeah. And that's why you see behaviors that um, the way Hamilton's rule works out, right, is that you see some behaviors that are extremely helpful to individuals, mm -hmm. even if they're not very closely related, can kind of outweigh that cost that might happen. That happens like in adoption, for example, in chimpanzees. Like, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that in the next episode too, but uh, younger infants, if they're not adopted, they'll they'll die. And so the benefit of adoption is is significant. But yeah, it's a it's a really cool concept. It does kind of get some dicey when you all of a sudden look at altruism and altruistic acts towards unrelated individuals because that's a little bit more complicated and then you have that relatedness factor of technically zero. I mean, they might be related to some degree if they're in the same social group, but it's also possible they're not, but we'll touch on that later too. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting investment and it seems to have some long-term payout. And the other thing is this too. There's also, you also have to take into consideration, and this is not something that necessarily comes out in Hamilton's rule because it's very simple, which is amazing that it's simple, but it also misses some things like there are benefits that are provided by performing alloparental care, for example. Like I said, they, they learn how to take care of their own young. They build these relationships. Right. Uh, they can increase their affiliation from other members towards them. So there's lots of sort of benefits that aren't necessarily captured in that that also kind of factor into when they choose to be pro-social. I just thought of something, and this is just me riffing on my own. I have no ba scientific basis yeah. for this, but it makes me also wonder if there's a sort of, you know, we talk a lot about genetic relatedness, but if there's a certain type of behavioral relatedness that mm. individuals like to, or not necessarily like, but individuals want to also progress in through time. Yeah, yeah. And that definitely brings up questions about 
you know, reputation um, mm -hmm. and, and sort of stuff like that, which is still something that's researched today in primates because there's not consensus on it. It's actually something that I'm really interested in. And that's this idea of like social closeness, right? Mm -hmm. Someone might not yeah. be genetically related to you, but there's a lot of sort of mechanisms that might promote these sort of helping pro-social and altruistic behaviors between socially close individuals, right? I mean, the same thing, right? I'm mo more likely to help you, Sierra, as a friend than some random person. Right. Um, we have no genetic relatedness. That does not help increase my or maximize my reproductive success. Um, but by helping you and by, you know, being nice to you and doing all sorts of things, there's all these sort of benefits that I can reap because we're socially close and I would much rather do it to you than maybe to someone else. So I definitely think that that plays a, a factor in it too. And there is actually research out there that, that looks at that too. So I don't think that you're like outside of left field with that idea, but it's a, it's a good, it's a good thought, but either way, it's an investment, right? And these, mm -hmm. they have these long-term payouts. So you got to be in it for the long haul. Yeah. It's really fascinating in my opinion. On another note, I did want to take a second to talk about the communication of these guys because they do love to talk. I love to talk too. <laughs> Which is probably why we're doing this, yeah. right? <laughs> the, the podcast, that is. Um, the cotton top tamarind has a vocal repertoire of about 38 distinct sounds consisting of bird-like whistles, soft chirping sounds, high-pitched trilling, and staccato calls. Not only is this remarkable, but in 1982, Jane Cleveland and Charles Snowden performed an in-depth feature analysis to classify the cotton top's repertoire of vocalizations. During their analysis, they found that the cotton tops use simple grammar consisting of eight phonetic variations of short frequency modulated chirps and five longer constant frequency whistles. They hypothesized that some of these calls demonstrate that the cotton top tamarind use phonetic syntax, while other calls may be examples of lexical syntax usage. Wow. I want to be careful using the word language. But these guys have a remarkable communication system for sure. Yeah, they definitely do. It is both sophisticated and complex, but there's more. Each type of call is given a letter signifier based on what the call is associated with. For example, C calls are associated with finding food, D calls are associated with eating, and furthermore, these calls can be modified to better deliver location information as well. So it's possible that these guys can use this range of vocalizations to maybe communicate with one another about what they're thinking? Yes, but it's not limited to their thought process. The cotton top tamarind may be able to use their sophisticated communication to communicate things like intent, emotion, curiosity, fear, dismay, playfulness, warnings, and joy. You and I both know how contentious the field of language and non-human animals is. Mm -hmm. So I imagine there are also some that maybe have other thoughts on this communication. M most definitely. And they have every right to be skeptical because we still don't fully understand their communication. And um, many others think that it is a bit much to make assumptions about being able to communicate with those complex topics and instead stick to more concrete examples of their communication. Ah, so like long calls in response to distant animals or screams during mobbing attacks. Yeah, kind of like, yeah, we can see that a C call is associated with finding food, but we're going to err on the side of caution of saying that 
they're joyful about this, for example. Yeah, so they wouldn't necessarily want to assume their intent or their emotion from it, but mm-hmm. rather just an concrete indicator of something that's happening in their direct environment. Right, and this is much easier to measure, right? And regardless of where you stand on the sophistication of this primate, quote-unquote, language, there is no doubt that vocalizations in the species serve a very important role in group defense, group cohesion, alarm calling, and close contact communication. That's remarkable. That's not the only way they communicate, though, right? Uh, you're right. Um, in addition to vocalizations, cotton-top tamarins partake in chemical communications in terms of scent. And we mentioned this a little bit before when we were talking about pheromone repression of Reproduction. Reproduction, right. These markers can be very complex, and some of the important information they convey through these smelly signals include species identification, individual identity, and timing of ovulation. So kind of like me and you, Matt, I can usually smell you like a mile away. And I know when you're on your way over. (laughs) You know, Sierra... I could choose to take that one of two ways, and for the sake of our friendship, I'm going to assume that you meant I smell good and say thank you. Yeah, you just think of it that way. Well, but, 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 no, 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 no. (laughs) Thank you. Whatever helps you sleep at night. For those of you listening this week, next week might be a one-man show. Stay tuned to find out. Anyways, I want to wrap up this episode to discuss this species' conservation status. I'll make it quick so Sierra doesn't have to smell me anymore. Currently, this species is labeled as critically endangered and has a wild population estimated at 6,000 individuals, only 2,000 of which are adults. Nearly three-fourths of this species' habitat has been lost to deforestation, which likely has caused their status to become so dire. What are some of the industries causing this deforestation? The main industries include agriculture, logging, manufacturing, and other forms of resource production. The silver lining, though, is that there is a large population of captive cotton-top tamarins. Currently, there is estimated to be 1,800 individuals living in captivity, and about 64% of those are in research facilities. So, I actually learned a fun fact that explains why those numbers are so high. You see, in captivity, the cotton-top is highly prone to colitis, which is linked to an increased risk of certain types of colon cancer. So these guys act as a good model for studying that kind of colon cancer in a comparative way. However, this is not their only use in captivity. You see a lot more cognitive and behavioral research is done on them as well, since they have their unique mating and prosocial tendencies. Wow, I did not know that. I guess you learn something new every day. Outside of research facilities, there are also many zoos which house groups of this species and are working toward preserving their population from extinction. So hopefully if things continue to get worse for the cotton-top tamarind, we may be able to use the zoo populations to revitalize their numbers. Sure hope so. The world needs to see these little guys, and it wouldn't be the same without their hair flow. I could not agree more. Well... That's all we have today, um, and we hope that you tune in next week for another episode of Monkey Business. Specifically, we're going to be talking about prosocial behavior. And as always, we'd like to give a special thanks to Oliver Eddy for sound production. This episode was written and directed by Sierra Simmons and Matt Babb of Georgia State University. See you all next week.